As we turn in our Bible today to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to see that he is focusing on how we are to live as Christians. In this section of scripture, uh, there's going to be a specific focus on submitting ourselves to those who may be over us. This week we'll see in verses 11 through 17 where he talks about governments. And next week in verses 18 through 25, he's going to talk about submitting at work. And then finally in chapter 3, he'll talk about submission in the home. And as we think about these instructions that God gives us through Peter, you might be thinking, well, would he be saying the same thing today if he knew the type of godlessness in government that we sometimes face? If that's what you're thinking, I want to remind you of the government that Peter was under. Peter was living in Rome under the Roman emperor Nero, who was persecuting and killing Christians. And God gave Peter these words to write for us. Peter himself would ultimately be martyred there in Rome. And I'm, no, you know, I'm sure he struggled with submitting to the government, just as many of us do. But what Peter wants us to know is this is God's word to us. And he wants us to follow his own personal example as he submitted to the government there in Rome. So I invite you to look with me now as we read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 through 17. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, if you look back at verses 9 and 10, you'll see that there, uh, Peter talked about the high and honored position that we as believers have been given, calling us priests as a part of the family of God. And here in verse 11, he again reminds us of our privileged position by calling us beloved. The Greek word that is used here, the root is agape. And that that word agape describes God's all-giving, self-sacrificing love as Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And what Peter is saying is he wants us to know how loved we are by God because he knows that many in the world were not feeling loved as they were rejected by the government over them, as they were being persecuted. And what Peter says is the reason as Christians we're not well-received in the world is because he tells us in verse 11, we do not belong to the world. We're aliens and strangers. This is now the third time in this letter that he reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. We are simply temporary residents. We are passing through this place called earth. And so as we do so, we live as foreigners. And what Peter is saying, as a foreigner, we do not adopt the customs of the world around us. And the customs he's talking about here uh, relate to the, the sin in, that, that is committed, as he says, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now, this word abstain uh, means to hold oneself back. It, it, it speaks of constantly pulling back from the pull of sin. 
It's kind of like being the designated driver, right? If you've ever been with a group of friends who say, hey, we're going to go out to the bars, we're going to tie one on, we're going to, and, and you say, well, I'm the designated driver. I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to get drunk. And while you're watching those around you uh, falling into this pit of sin, you're, you're, you're not, you're staying out of it. Now, I know at times that can feel like, well, you're, you're missing out, right? It looks like they're having a lot of fun. But if you've ever been around a group like that, uh, you know that they can't even remember the fun they're having, right? The next morning, they're, they're hungover, they're throwing up, they feel miserable, they don't even know what happened uh, the night before. And what Peter is telling us is we're not to join in the things of the world. And there's not only those short-term consequences like a hangover, sometimes people do things that have lifetime consequences that affect them. And so what Peter is telling us as believers is rather than looking at the passing pleasures the world offers us, we are to please God. He says when we go after what the world offers, our fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. Now this word for war literally describes an ongoing military command. What Peter's telling us is dealing with sin isn't a one and done. You don't get victory over something and then it's over. He says there is a daily dying to sin. There's a daily battle that we face, and each time we have to choose to live for God. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We don't try to go toe-to-toe with sin, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to flee from it. Peter is telling us to to turn from it. Uh, Timothy tells us to run from it. And as we flee from sin, as we run from what is wrong, we are to run to what is right. And as we do so, we will be a light to others. He tells us in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, when you hear this word Gentiles, In the scriptures, Gentiles is sometimes used to speak of somebody who ethnically is not a Jewish person. That's a non-Jew. But it's also used to speak of non-believers. And that's the context here. Peter's talking about we as believers versus those who are not yet Christians. And he says, as, as they watch us who are Christians, he'll tell us later in 1 Peter 3.16 and again in 4.4 that they're looking for reasons to slander us or to find reasons to reject the gospel. How many times have you been told by somebody, well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, right? And your sinful response is, well, there's plenty of room for more. Come, come anyway, uh, right? No, that's not what we say. It's, but what it's telling us is they, they are looking for excuses, and how we act can give them ammunition, And so what Peter's telling us is we're to live in such a way that our good works back up our good words. It says when they watch or observe us. Now, the Greek word used here is more than just a quick casual glance. It literally describes a a person who was hired to go into the fields and to supervise the laborers. This person would keep track of how much each person was doing in a day, and they, would, they, would, they were the manager, the supervisor. And this is the idea here. It says people are watching us. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when non-believers look at your life, what do they see? Do they see the fruits of righteousness? As you think about what you're producing and the witness you have, does it attract people to the gospel? Or does it repel them or give them ammunition 
against what you're speaking about. In the summer of 1805, there were a number of Indian chiefs and warriors who met in a council uh, up in New York at Buffalo Creek. And there they gathered to hear a presentation by Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. And after his sermon, one of the leading chiefs, a, a man by the name of Red Jacket, stood up. And he said, we are told that you've been preaching these same things to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We're acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less likely to cheat Indians as they have been doing, we will be willing to listen again to what you say. As you think about your life, as people are watching you, is a good advertisement for the gospel? Do your works reflect your words? Peter tells us in verse 12 that there is a day of visitation coming. And this refers to that time of judgment when Jesus will return to the earth. You can uh, find the same word used in Luke 19.44 where Jesus entered Jerusalem. And there you'll remember he wept over the city. And he said, if you had known the day of your visitation, but because you have rejected the Messiah, Jesus says there will be judgment and rejection for you. And this, again, is the idea. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws all men and women to himself, but he uses us as his ambassadors to be partners in the gospel and helping uh, people to hear and respond to the good news. And Peter tells us here, the way we live as our life can draw people, can be a good advertisement. As you think about how you're living, uh, I, I like this poem, I don't know the author, who wrote it, but he says, you are writing a gospel a day, a chapter each day. By the deeds that you do and the words that you say, men read what you write, whether faithful and true. Just what is the gospel according to you? As Peter's talking about the way we witness with our life, he focuses in and highlights something here about submission to the government over us. And as you think about Peter's day, how... how powerful that witness would have been as the government was persecuting and killing Christians. In Luke six twenty seven through 29, uh, Jesus tells us, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And as the Christians lived out the Lord's words, people would have stood up. They would have said, we're listening, we're, we're looking, we're watching. Why are you different? I mean, how timely is this in the day in which we live? As we look at the stuff happening in our world, in our country, people are looking at Christians and they're saying, well, what, what, how are you responding to what's going on around you? And what Peter says is they live out the Lord's words. It's going to remove the slander and accusations that the Christians were evildoers who were trying to overthrow the government. He says, as you live in such a way, these and other false accusations will fail. Verse 15 says, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The word that is used here for silencing literally means to muzzle the mouth of a yapping dog. Don't you love that? Have you ever seen one of those little rat dogs? Yip, 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 yip. Right? And you just want to muzzle it. Uh, this is what Peter says. As we live in such a way, people will look and it will silence the critics. The best way to silence somebody is not with your words or what you're posting online. It's with your life. 
Verses 13 through 14 tell us, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, notice that as we're told to submit to the government over us, it says it's not because of who they are. We do it for the Lord's sake. Don't miss that. It's not because of who they are. As we submit to the government over us, it's for the Lord's sake. We'll see the same thing next week when we submit to those who are over us at work. It's the same thing if you submit in your home to the person over you because ultimately at the top of every chain of command is Jesus Christ. Romans 13, 1 through 2 tells us, Let every person who is in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, when we read passages like that that say, Well, God is the one who sets up governments over us, have you ever wondered then, why do we have godless governments? I mean, if God can control who is in authority over us, then why don't we have nothing but righteous governments in the world around us? And there are two reasons I want to highlight for you today. In some cases, the answer is it's a consequence of our sins. We've turned away from God. We say we want to live the way we want, and God says, fine, I'll give you what you want. You can read through the book of Judges, and you'll see it there. There's this cycle that happens over and over and over for 450 years. And that cycle that you see up on the slide is where Israel turned from God and they started to live in sin. We want to serve the pagan gods. We want to do things the way we want. And God says, fine, I'll let you live how you want and under the authority of those you want. And they ultimately end up as slaves to these foreign powers. And is there suffering in slavery? As God has withdrawn his hand of protection and blessing, uh, they cry out to God ultimately. They're driven to their knees. And in supplication, they cry out to God, will you save us? Will you send a deliverer? And God would raise up a judge, a person who would uh, be the, the human representative who would lead a deliverance of God's people. And then it, of course, points to the ultimate deliverance we have through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as God would save his people, there would be a period of silence. They would enjoy peace again. There would be blessing. But then they would go right back to the way things had been. They'd fall back into sin. And God allowed them the consequence of their choices to happen over and over. As you look at that slide, can you pick where our government is? Where we are today as we've turned our back on God, as we've said we want to do it our way, and God says, fine, I'm going to withdraw my hand of protection and blessing. And he's trying to drive us back to our knees to turn us back to him. Now, another reason God may allow an unrighteous government to rise up is because he has a a greater plan. And it's part of something that we may not fully grasp at the moment. We see something like that in Romans 9, 17. There it says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This is speaking about the time of captivity of the Jews under the Egyptian ruler as Pharaoh enslaved them as they went through this time of suffering. God said, I am doing this because as you look today, we are thousands of years after the exodus, thousands of years after God demonstrated his power and and defeated the most mighty nation on the earth at that time. 
And we still speak of God's deliverance today. The Jewish celebration of Passover points to the way God redeemed his people under Pharaoh. And so God said, I had a greater purpose that my name would be glorified. And there are times we can't see or understand what God is doing, but we can always do what God tells us to do, which is to submit to those in authority over us, remembering that God is the ultimate authority over them. So as we submit to this authority, we are submitting ultimately to God. Now in America, we don't have kings or emperors as they did in Peter's day, but we do have a president. We do have police and we are to submit ourselves to them. Now, as I tell you to submit to them, does that mean that it's a blanket statement that no matter what it is they tell us to do, we're to do it? No, not at all. When Peter uses this word submit, it's the Greek word hupotasso. And you see up there on the slide, it is a compound word. Hupo means to place under or to subordinate. And tasso means to appoint, order, or arrange. This is actually a word used to speak of the military chain of command. It literally means to fall in rank under an authority or commander. We have many in our church and in our community who have served or are actively serving in the military. This is Military City USA. So we understand a military chain of command where you salute the rank, you obey the order uh, up the line. And you go from non-commissioned officers to officers to to generals and all the way up to four-star generals. You have admirals in some cases. But who is ultimately at the top? It's the commander-in-chief. But here on earth, we can say that's the ultimate authority in the American chain of command. But God says, no, I'm the ultimate commander-in-chief. I'm over all of this. And so if someone in authority tells you to do something that God forbids... Or if they tell you to, or if they forbid you to do what God commands, who are you st- supposed to submit to? As you think of who Patasso, what is the military chain of command? If the earthly authority is unrighteous in telling you to do something that violates God's word, this overrides any earthly authority. We find examples of that all throughout the scriptures. You can read Exodus chapter 1. There, the Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh, the earthly authority, to kill all the newborn baby boys. As they were being birthed, they said, if you see it's a male Hebrew, kill it. And it says in Exodus 1.17 that they didn't do it because they feared God. They heard an earthly authority say, do this, and they knew God's Uh, law above it said don't do that so they didn't kill the baby boys we find it in Acts chapter 5 where Peter and some of the other disciples had been thrown into jail for preaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ they were released and the Jewish authorities told them don't do this anymore don't preach about the gospel and Acts 5 27 through 29 tells us and when they had brought them this is speaking of how they had to go back out and re-arrest Peter and the disciples It says, and when they had brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and instead bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Peter is writing the words we're reading today where he says, submit to authority. And yet Peter says, we will submit to God over man. You can read the book of Daniel. 
Daniel and his three friends wouldn't eat the king's food because they said it violates God's dietary laws. We find where Daniel didn't uh, pray to the king as God, and he was thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow the knee and worship the king as God because they said there is the true God in heaven. All of these are instances where God's word overrode what they were being told by earthly authorities. Now, here's something that's very important for us to understand, brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't get to decide what we think is God's word. We have to actually base it upon what God's word says. There are times that I talk to Christians who will tell me, well, I'm, I'm not doing this or that, or I'm not, you know, I'm not going to pay my taxes because the government over me is unrighteous. Well, Jesus said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, right? Uh, there are times people say, well, I'm going to choose what laws are righteous and what laws are not. Um, many of us here struggle with obeying the laws around us. When I was a police officer in Dallas, I met a lot of people who didn't like to obey the law, and uh, especially when it came to speeding, right? Now, I'll, I'll make a personal confession to you. I've been guilty of that myself. My two kids are smiling at me from the front row here. They tell me I'm an efficient driver, right? Um, and I've gotten a ticket uh, before, thus experiencing the truth of verse 14, where it says, those in authority are in place for the punishment of evildoers in the praise of those who do right. Uh, now, when it comes to praising those who do right, I can tell you I've been on the other side where I was the policeman writing the ticket. And I didn't get a lot of praise when I would hand the ticket to somebody Uh, In fact, I'd get cussed at, I'd get told off, sometimes uh, by people whose cars were covered in Christian bumper stickers, right? And I'd run the, the, is this car stolen? Because the way this person's (laughs) acting uh, doesn't match their behavior. Uh, Friends, if you're breaking the law and you get caught, do everyone a favor and just graciously accept your ticket. Uh, In fact, go a step further. Even if you don't feel like it, tell the police officers, thank you, sir or ma'am, for taking care of us, for protecting us, remembering that God has put them there for us. Now, as we talk about following the law, those in authority have to follow the law as well. If a police officer violates the law, they deserve judgment. If a government authority violates the law, they deserve to be held accountable. When those in authority overstep their authority, we as Christians have the right to stand for our rights. Again, Peter isn't telling us to roll over. When Peter says, when when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, remember when he was facing trial himself, at one point he's struck by one of the guards, and Jesus didn't say, here, hit me again. He turns to the guy and says, "For for what wrong do you hit me? Jesus confronted the wrong. And sometimes as Christians, you have to confront the wrong. You have to stand up for it. We as a church had to do that. Um, You can look out the doors over here at the 410 campus and see we're currently expanding the parking area. And we purchased that uh, home over there over two years ago. And we followed governmental authority. We, we owned the property legally. We went to the municipality, Castle Hills over us. We filed for what's called a special use permit. This SUP uh, has very specific things the law says. Uh, there is a federal statute called the Religious Land Use Act that grants uh, entities like churches the fair and legal use of their property, which we had. And we applied for the rezoning. 
And we went through the process, and we were denied, and we appealed, and we were denied, and we went back through, literally over a multi-year process, exhausting every single channel of uh, appeal. And we ultimately had to file a federal lawsuit under the Religious Land Use Act against the city in order to have the fair and legal use of our property. And as we did so, we continued to follow the scriptures. Matthew 5.25 says that while you are on your way to court, turn aside if possible and settle the case. The federal government joined the state, the, the Department of State joined our lawsuit because they said this is a clear an egregious violation of the federal statute. It was going to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and create case law if needed. And when the city said, okay, we're in violation, we will settle, we did so out of court, following again what the scripture said. And by doing so, uh, we not only got the fair and legal use of what we should have had to start with, but we maintained the relationship with the city We want to be good partners. We want to be corporate citizens. We live in this city. We seek the good of this community. And so this is an example of being a believer where you can do the things that we're talking about today by submitting to authority but also exercising uh, your rights. Dealing with COVID is another example that we've had to deal with as a church, trying to thread the needle of working as a partner in the community while still submitting to authority, knowing that there is uh, the authority over us says that ultimately churches are exempt from all regulations. Uh, We do not have to follow by law any of the directions of the, the city, but that would be being a poor corporate citizen. It would be not prudent to protect our congregation. So as a church, we have done all that we can to work with the authority over us while still doing what is best for the body of Christ. There are weeks I have been on the phone with the mayor's office in a conference call, and I'm hearing one thing, and literally two hours later, I'm on another conference call with the governor's office hearing something different. Uh, they, there, there is just this constant changing of how things are happening. And as we're talking about trying to do these things and protect our people, let me just mention something here about this that includes protecting your privacy. Friends, I don't know where this rumor ever got started, but there is hardly a week that goes by that I don't get an email or a call from somebody who says, I hear you're turning over our information to the government. That has never happened. When we were registering people, Uh, for services. And if you're worshiping online, because I I get the emails that say, well, when you stop registering people or when you stop making us wear face masks in worship, then we'll come. We'll come because we're not registering and you're free to not wear a mask while seated in service if you'd like. But we have never turned over anybody's information to the government. And I can guarantee this. If the government were to say to me, you either give us your information or you go to jail, you will come and bail me out of jail because that's where I'll be. I am not going to give any of our church's information to the government. Uh, We have never done that. The reason we have registered people is for two reasons. The first was to try to manage the numbers. Uh, As I'm looking out in this service, the balconies, Uh, have people in it. People are here socially distanced. There are times we will have people waiting outside because we can't get everybody in. 
And early on, when this whole thing was happening and it was brand new, we were trying to prevent people having to stand in line outside and be mad because they showed up and then they didn't get into church. And so we were trying to manage our numbers. The second reason we did it was so that if there was ever an exposure in one of our worship services, we knew who had been exposed and we could notify you. And we had a situation out at our Stone Oak campus where that happened. We actually had to close our Stone Oak campus for two weeks because we had uh, multiple exposures within that part of our congregation. And so that's the only reason we have registered people. And we've stopped doing that now because we've hit a point where people, uh, the numbers have kind of worked themselves through and people, you know, if you have to wait, it's a first come first serve, so be sure you're first to church, otherwise you might have to stand outside. Now we are still registering children. And the reason we're still registering children is because that is a very complex set of managing the numbers. We just can't say, oh, there's 120 kids here for this service and put them all together because you don't put a fifth grader in with an 18-month-old. And you, you, there are certain things that we are trying to do, so we have to know how many kids are coming and what age groups so that we can properly open classrooms and staff those. Now, as I mentioned that, let me just tell you this, since y'all are here at the 11 o'clock service or if you're worshiping online and wondering when is uh, children's ministry open for 11 o'clock, next Sunday we will have our children's ministry open this second hour. We've been doing it for the 9.15 for over half a year, and now we're going to be doing the 11 o'clock. But in doing that, what it means is we need additional help because staffing those additional classrooms will require more and more volunteers. So if you're somebody who served in the past and you're, or you're here and you're saying, I'm, I'm ready to serve and you're comfortable uh, being with the kids, we have all kinds of safety protocols over there. You're, you're not going to be put in a difficult or dangerous situation. And we have paid child care workers who know all of our procedures, our sanitation, our, all the things that we're doing. So you will have help. Uh, but if you're able to serve, please contact our children's uh, ministry and let them know that you'd like to be added to the list because we want to continue to open up and take more ground. Now, as we talk about limits, uh, what are Christians to do when the government limits something, like prayer in public school? You know, back in the 1950s, the ruling came down that public school prayer was no longer going to be allowed. The teachers and others would not begin the day with prayer and such. And then over the years, more and more restrictions have come. Back in the 1990s, I was pastoring Country Bible Church in Kaufman, Texas, when the ruling came down that prayer would no longer be allowed over the public address systems in football stadiums. And uh, Kaufman, if you're familiar with it, is 30 miles southeast of Dallas. It's a small farming ranching community. Uh, where Friday night football is a second religion. Uh, so much so, I, this is not a joke, when I came to Country Bible Church, uh, the school district there gave me season tickets to the football game. And they said, uh, Pastor Roger, you're going to be in the pastor section in the stadium. And I said, the pastor section? They said, yes, uh, you're going to be right next to Brother White from First Baptist Church and Brother Council from First Assemblies on the other side, and you're right there on the 50-yard line. I had prime seats. It was great. Uh, they said because uh, the ministers connect with their congregations. The whole town turns out, right? You've got kids in band and drill team and cheerleaders and football. And, and they said, so you, you've got to be there because all your people are there. 
And so when this ruling came down that uh, you could no longer pray over the public address system before a football game, there was literally mutiny in the city. People were like, well, you can't do that. And uh, they said, we're going to storm the announcer's booth, grab the microphone, and we're going to pray. And uh, many in my church said, Pastor, are you with us? Are you going to you know, go with us? Are you going to lead the charge? And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, what's wrong with you? Don't you believe in the word of God? And I said, well, of course I do. And somebody said, well, 1 Timothy 2.8 says we are to pray in every place. And I said, well, that is what it says, but it doesn't say to pray over every PA system. And I said, if you actually read the rest of the passage, it goes on to say we're to pray without anger or dispute. And I don't think that's your posture. And so I said, nobody is keeping us from praying. We can still pray. And in fact, that ruling multiplied the amount of prayer taking place because what happened is people who normally were talking through the prayer or just kind of moving around, uh, everybody prayed. The two opposing teams would meet in the center of the field and they would pray. The visitor and home side would stand up. Everybody would recite the Lord's Prayer together. And it actually increased the amount of prayer that was taking place. Now, if you're somebody saying, yeah, but Roger, what about in the classroom? What about Shouldn't shouldn't there be prayer in the classroom? Absolutely. I think we should all pray. And you know what? Nobody's keeping you from praying in your heart and mind. And if you're somebody who's been really upset about this issue of school prayer, let me ask you this. During this COVID lockdown where you've had to home, uh, have the distance learning, where your kids have been at home, and that's been their school day, how many of you have started every morning at home with prayer before the school day? Anybody? Who's keeping you from praying in your home? Why do we want to take something as sacred as prayer, the responsibility we have as parents, uh, and push it off on teachers? And you know what? Think about what prayers in schools would look like today with all the uh, pagan gods and all the stuff that is being worshipped in our society. It's actually a good thing that many of these uh, prayers that would have been, you know, written by somebody out there in some nebulous pagan god aren't what our kids are being forced to pray. You can talk to my kids and they'll tell you, when we would drive them to school, my kids started out in Christian schools and then they went to public school, and as we would drive into the parking lot, as we would do carpool uh, with their friends, we would pray before they got out of the car. We would pray for God to give them a good day, that God would protect the school, the the teachers and other students. We'd pray for opportunities for them to be light in the darkness, to share their faith. And over the years, uh, we've had the privilege of seeing many uh, occasions where kids have come to faith in Christ uh, through the, the witness of my kids and other Christians in the schools. And so nobody is keeping you from praying in the schools. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, what about abortion? Right? There's an unrighteous law, Roger. There's something the government says it's okay to kill uh, unborn children. On average, 3,500 children a day in America uh, lose their life to this tragic, ungodly decision about abortion. So what are we to do as believers? Bomb and burn the clinics? Kill the abortionist, as some people have done in the name of Christ? No, absolutely not. God says, thou shalt not kill. And you can say, well, they're killing babies. So we're going to kill those who are killing babies. Are you hupotassoing? 
Are you following the authority over you? God who says thou shall not murder and you're going to turn around and murder in his name. Is that following the authority over you? No, it's not. So what are we to do? Sit idly by, let babies be killed? No, absolutely not. We can pray. We start there. We pray. Friends, prayer is powerful. Are you praying that these laws would be overturned? We can volunteer in intervention ministries. Our church supports financially and through volunteers ministries here in our community that are pro-life like any woman can, the Pregnancy Resource Center, other ministries like this. We also support and volunteer in ministries after the birth of children, like the Teen Mops program, where teenage uh, young ladies who have had children who chose life for their babies are now struggling through the school system. And we have mentors who come alongside and help them, uh, not only with their school, but just life skills that are needed. We can uh, come alongside uh, women in a post-abortive ministry that we have here at our church called Redeemed and Restored. Now, men, you may not know anything about this because you never see anything advertised. But ladies, you know if you go into the bathrooms, in the stalls, there will be brochures that advertise this ministry called Redeemed and Restored. And this is a ministry for women who have made the tragic decision uh, to have an abortion who now are struggling with, what do I do? Am my damaged goods? Is God done with me? Is there forgiveness available? God is not done with you, and there is forgiveness. And we have women who themselves have gone through uh, abortion, who have found God's grace and healing, who now walk alongside other post-abortive women to say, here is healing, here is hope, here's what God has for you. These are things we can do. Now, I said we can pray, and we should be praying. You know, we have a president, President Biden, who says he's a believer. He says he's personally against abortion, and yet he's supporting policies uh, that are pro-abortion. Are you praying for our president, that he would be a man who would uh, live his faith? Are you praying for Vice President Harris, another person who claims to be a believer? Are you asking That if they are not believers, if they really don't have a relationship with Jesus, that first and foremost, God would turn their heart to them, that they would actually become true believers. And then as Christians, that they would be men and women of conviction who would live their faith out. Friends, that's what we're called to do as believers. Are you praying about this talk about packing the Supreme Court, that God would overturn that, that it would fail? We finally have a majority of justices that claim to be pro-life. Are you praying that God would move the law to be changed back to righteousness where life would be protected? As Christians, we're told in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Peter tells us here in verses 16 and 17, Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves for God. Honor all men. This means we show love and respect to people regardless of their race, regardless of their gender. It says love the brotherhood. This is echoing what we saw in 1 Peter 1.22 where we were told to have a sincere and fervent love for brothers and sisters in Christ. 
He says to fear God, which we saw in 1 Peter 1.17, means to show holy reverence for God. And finally, he says, honor the king, which means those who are in authority over us. I understand this issue of submission is not popular, but it's something God calls us to do. And as we do so, it's always with the understanding that as we submit to those over us, we are ultimately submitting to the God of heaven. And this is why we as followers of Christ are called to do this. Will you join me please as we pray? Lord God, we ask that you would help us to follow you by following the leaders over us. Lord God, we pray that you would give us leaders who have hearts for you. We do ask God for President Biden and Vice President Harris that if they do not have a real relationship with you, Jesus, that they would come to understand their need for you to personally be their savior and that they would turn to you and accept your gift of grace for them. And Father, as believers then, would they be men and women of courage to live, to live lives that reflect the truth of your word? Father, we pray the same for members of Congress and the Senate for our state and local leaders, for those who fill our courts, that they would make good and fair and godly decisions. Lord God, would you fill our school boards, our curriculum committees, and our classrooms with teachers who will teach the truth and honor you. May our police and military be men and women of courage. Would you help them to uphold laws that are good and godly? And finally, God, may we as a church and individuals be good citizens, giving no one reason to speak evil against us, or you whom we represent. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.